Good morning, everyone. Today we will be in Mark chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 40 to 42, so just a few verses this morning. So as you turn there in your Bibles, I want to set the stage a little bit like usual um, since we're just jumping into this text. And it's good to know what precedes uh, this event that we'll be digging into more fully in a moment. Um, As I've said before, the last time I preached through Mark, this uh, gospel of Mark is the shortest of all four gospels. It's the most fast-paced in in nature and style, and um, that's just the way Mark wrote it, um, being carried carried along by the Holy Spirit, of course. And this this gospel begins kind of abruptly. Um, It begins with John the Baptist preparing the way for the Lord Jesus. And then we see John the Baptist baptizing Christ himself. We then see Jesus being tempted in the wilderness and triumphing over the evil one. We see Jesus beginning his earthly ministry, calling his disciples, preaching and teaching, and healing with much authority and power to the astonishment of onlookers. And so he goes from town to town, in and around Galilee, and he's primarily going about with the intention of teaching and preaching, and he's being approached by many um, who either wanted to be healed or just wanted to get a glimpse of this miracle worker they'd heard about. In fact, we read in verse 35 of Mark chapter 1 that Jesus actually had to withdraw into a desolate place just to be alone for a change so that he could commune with his father in prayer. But these verses we'll be looking at this morning give an account of one leper in particular who not only saw his desperate need, but also the one who could deliver him. And so we come to Mark chapter 1, verse 40, and it begins, And a leper came to him, and imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will... You can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Now in these verses, I hope and and trust that by the help and grace of the Spirit, we'll come to see more clearly how this miracle, this miraculous cleansing of this poor leper, reveals to us the heart of Christ, whose pity and power towards those who come to him are the same today as they were then. And so, as you may have noticed in your bulletin, if you grabbed one, uh, we'll consider, firstly, the leper's approach, secondly, Christ's pity and power, and last but not least, what both of these mean for us today. And so the first thing we read in verse 40 is that the one who is approaching Jesus is a leper, which I think makes it necessary for us to define what leprosy is or was at that time, not just from the standpoint of its physical symptoms or side effects, um, but also its Old Testament significance and ties to the ceremonial law. So leprosy is an English word, obviously, used in this text and others. And it's translated from a Hebrew word, which I won't attempt to pronounce, but that Hebrew, Hebrew word in Scripture is used to describe several skin diseases 
and ailments. We see this described at length in Leviticus chapter 13, for example, which provides the different laws that Israelites and the priests were to follow if and when these cases arose among the people of God. Under the ceremonial law, the emphasis wasn't on personal hygiene, but on being in a state of ritual cleanness or uncleanness. And so whether someone had a little bit of a skin rash or if it was something far more serious, they would not go to a physician. They would go to the priests who were appointed to distinguish between clean and unclean in the covenant community. And the priest would examine the affected area of the person's skin, and if they determined it was severe, then they would pronounce them unclean. If it seemed less serious in their eyes, there was a process carried out where the affected or infected person would be isolated for a week at a time, uh, sometimes repeatedly, until it was clear that this was or was not a leprous disease. If and when they were pronounced unclean, they would be separated from the rest of the covenant community, living as outcasts, prohibited from drawing near to others unless they were lepers themselves. And so, for example, we read another account in Luke chapter 17 that the lepers who were there, they stood at a distance. They stood at a distance from everyone else because they could not draw near. They were separated from business, even family, friends. They were socially isolated and financially destitute, condemned as unclean under the law, which represented their ritual deadness. And now we read such a text as that on those ceremonial laws, and we may think, well, that seems a bit strict, that seems a bit much, doesn't it? And the answer is, well, yes, that's kind of the point, because the law is strict by its very nature, which in a more narrow sense showed them the utter and incomparable holiness of God and the holiness that was required of those who worshipped him. It showed them ultimately that they desperately needed a mediator who would save them because it clearly wasn't by their law-keeping that they would stay in God's favor or be saved. And so part of this, as we see in Leviticus, is that, <clears throat> is that the law could only convict the leper. It's really what we're talking about every Sunday now um, as we read from the law, um, as Quran did this morning. It convicts the sinner of their sin, and this law convicted the leper of their disease. It provided no cleansing or healing or remedy in and of itself. Now back to this leper in particular, what are we to think of his ceremonial standing and status? We have a better idea, number one, by the verses that follow where Jesus directs him to go to the priest with an offering for cleansing as prescribed under the law. But we also get a glimpse of the seriousness of this man's state, um, his, the, the, the depth of his sickness in the parallel account in Luke chapter 5, um, where Luke records this man, he describes him as being full of leprosy. Meaning this wasn't just a, a simple case of eczema or a few scabs here and there on his skin. 
Rather, this man was likely in a terribly sick state, covered with sores, diseased bodily members from head to toe, unclean, and thus an outcast. He must have heard, though, somehow, that there was a man named Jesus who was known for healing the sick and doing miraculous things simply by speaking. He's in such a desperate state that he does the unthinkable, perhaps thinking this would be his only chance as Jesus passes by and he actually draws near to Jesus. And as you look at the text, you notice he does so with a mixture of certainty and uncertainty. He believes that Jesus is able to provide what he so desperately needs, but at the same time, he's uncertain whether Jesus is willing. Perhaps he thought that this Jesus he had heard about, though powerful, was, was harsh and selective with whom he heals. Perhaps he thought, sure, he's healed the lame and the sick, In other towns, but he's never seen someone like me. He's never seen someone so hideous, so dejectable, such a wretched outcast as I am. And nevertheless, I'm desperate, so I'll take my chances and go to him. And so he comes to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling before him, said, If you will, you can make me clean. Now, the text is not explicit on what was in the heart of this leper, or whether he was coming to Jesus as an act of saving faith, but it does give us a picture, in some sense, of what it looks like for sinners to come to Christ for salvation. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, do you notice here how the leper comes to Jesus? He doesn't try to make himself more presentable before coming to him, nor Does he try to hide what he truly is because such an attempt would be futile? It was quite obvious who and what he was. He had nothing, nothing whatsoever to offer to Jesus. He could only come to him in his undeniable filth. And yet his filthiness did not keep him from drawing near. He knew what Jesus was able to do, But he questioned his heart. He questioned his willingness to receive him. And so he came imploring and pleading with nothing to bring but himself. And such is the way that many sinners have come to Jesus, trusting his ability, but doubting his willingness. That there's there's some small chance that he'll deny me if I come to him as I am. We may think many have denied me when I've opened up to them and, and sought their help in the past. So who's to say Jesus won't do the same? But if only we knew more of Christ's heart, would we see just how unwarranted such doubts are? And this text is proof. And as we read in the next verse and come to our second point of Christ's pity and power, looking at verse 41, and tying all of this in with the hypothetical doubts I just attributed to this leper, what's the very first reaction we see here of Jesus? Was he moved with disgust and disdain for this man who was full of leprosy? Did he forbid the man from 
drawing any closer and proceed to scold him for his uncleanness? Obviously not, but I wonder if that's what his disciples who were with him thought would happen. Um, Surely they would have been taken off guard by the bold approach of this leper. And we know the disciples were prone to forget quickly the past words and works of Jesus, as we often are as well. And And I wonder if they thought that despite Jesus healing the sick in other towns, casting out demons, that he'd somehow draw the line with this leper. And I don't say that to pick on the disciples, but we are talking about the same group of guys who were trying to keep parents from bringing their little children to Jesus for a blessing, and we know how that went for them as Jesus corrected their thinking. And if in any case, uh, they were certainly shocked by the leper's approach, but they were about to be even more shocked at what was about to happen. We read that Jesus was moved with pity, not disgust, not disdain, not wrath, but pity. One Bible dictionary defines pity as a tender sorrow towards those in misery or distress. It's closely connected with compassion and mercy. Now, it's important to note that we aren't talking about some ordinary man here. Rather, we're reading about one who is truly God and truly man, two natures in one person, divine and human, as we've been discussing in Sunday school, and we'll continue that today as well. But when Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God, assumed a human nature in the incarnation, he did not lose or set aside his divine attributes. And now, discussing the attributes of God is always an interesting thing because most of us bring our own misconceptions into the discussion, and so we often think that the attributes of God can somehow be pitted against each other, as if we're looking at a pie chart and there's one slice here for holiness, one slice here for love, one slice here for mercy, one slice here for justice, and all of these slices make up different parts of who God is. Some might think that one slice is bigger than another. They may emphasize his holiness against his love or his love against his holiness. Um, And we just make a whole mess of things when we do that in our lives, doctrinally and practically in the church as well. And there's an important doctrine that we've discussed before. Um, It may have been in our Westminster study, or it may have been in real conversations, but It's called divine simplicity. And basically what that means, I won't spend too much time on it here because it's not really the point of the text, but I think it's important to keep in our minds simply because we're talking about the attributes of Christ as one who is God and also human. Divine simplicity basically means that God is not made up of parts like we are. He's not made up of his attributes Rather, he simply is his attributes. He is love. He is holy. He is all-powerful, and so on. And when we look at Christ, we see one who is truly man as well. And so he has human emotions. And those emotions, unlike ours, were perfect all the time. And so back to verse 41, where Christ, 
the God-man, the one who is infinitely holy and righteous and just, does not cast the leper from his presence, but is moved with pity. When we look at the Gospels, this is what Jesus does. He goes towards the suffering, the fallenness, the depravity of those he came to save. He moves toward it to deal with it head on and to reverse it through his miraculous ministry, as we see, but ultimately in his redeeming work at the cross in the empty tomb. He goes so far as to stretch out his hand, we read here, and he touches the leper, saying to him, I will be clean. And now imagine the look on the disciples' faces. Imagine this trembling leper who knew the immense power of this man, Jesus, but he did not understand his willingness to cleanse. And as the hand of Christ is laid upon his leprous flesh, not because Christ somehow needed to touch in order to heal, but simply to better display his compassion and mercy towards the miserable and needy who come to him. And also that he who is the perfectly clean and spotless one can actually touch the unclean and not be tainted whatsoever. But actually, the very reverse happens. And immediately, we read in verse 42, the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Not, okay, come back in a week and we'll reevaluate your condition and see what you have. Not even in a few minutes, but immediately upon the word leaving the lips of Christ, the cure was wrought. I love what John Calvin noted here about the omnipotence of Jesus in this verse. Omnipotence meaning he is all-powerful. And he writes, He who by the mere expression of his will restores health to men must possess supreme authority. And this one who has supreme authority and all power is rich in mercy. The leper was not merely pronounced clean as one would be by a priest under the old covenant law. But he was made clean, the text says. The leprosy that was consuming this man the moment before was now totally cured. And rather than Jesus becoming unclean, the leper is made clean by the cleansing of Christ's all-powerful word, accompanied by his compassionate touch. Where the priests of old could only make pronouncements in accordance with the strict demands of the law, Jesus, whose priesthood is altogether different, it's better and eternal as we read in the book of Hebrews, his priesthood shows that he has the authority not only to pronounce, but also to provide the remedy and the cure. He is the only priestly physician that we see in Scripture, but we know from the plain teaching of Scripture that he is not so towards all universally, but only to some. And that brings us to our third and final point, uh, what this text means for us. Now, I mentioned earlier that in one sense, this leper uh, and his approach to Jesus is a picture 
of how sinners come to Jesus for salvation. I wouldn't say it's entirely synonymous, but I would say it's a picture nonetheless. And we share the same disease that this leper had. Yet it isn't the leprosy itself, but rather the spiritual disease that we have by nature. Now, I know if we wanted to be more accurate, we would say it's actually a spiritual dead state we're in by nature in Adam. But we'll stick with this analogy for now for the sake of this text. And so our nature is polluted from the moment we're born. And from the moment we're born, we're up a creek, spiritually speaking, because that sin, like a leprous disease, spreads into every fiber and aspect of our lives into all of our actions and words. We've all become like one who is unclean, says the prophet Isaiah. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Not all of our sinful deeds. He says all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We are full of sin, like this man was full of leprosy. And like the leper on our own, we stand condemned under God's holy law. If we give an honest look at God's law and its holiness and righteousness, we're forced to confess and cry like a leper that we are unclean. And because of our sin, because of our law breaking, we're far worse than social outcasts. We're at enmity with God who is infinitely holy and therefore uncleanness cannot dwell in his presence, nor could we even stand in his presence and live as unclean ones. And yet, as one Puritan put it, though God is terrible to his enemies, yet he is full of mercy, love, and compassion to his loved ones. In other words, there's good news. There is a gospel which declares that God has made a way so that spiritually dead, unclean sinners like us can be cleansed and reconciled to God by simply believing in his son who lived and died and rose from the grave. It seems so simple when we say it, simply believing. But if it's so simple then why doesn't everyone do what this leper did and come to Jesus for cleansing? What is keeping you? What is keeping us from the leper's approach? We know that Jesus is willing and able to cleanse those who come to him. And that's clear just by reading these verses. But the question is, are we willing? And there are a few different types of unwillingness that I'd like to mention here. And this isn't an exhaustive list by any means, but just a few that I noted on this text. And maybe it describes you. Maybe it describes someone you know, someone you've interacted with recently. And the first type of unwillingness is that person who knows they're filthy, but unlike the leper, they love their filth. They would prefer to wallow in it rather than seek cleansing. This, of course, describes the unbeliever who has no interest in coming to Christ because, as Paul says, their foolish heart is darkened. 
And such darkness manifests itself in their preference for the fleeting pleasures of sin when they know and are warned of an eternity of wrath and judgment awaiting them apart from Christ. The second type of unwillingness is that person also could be an unbeliever, also could be a believer, but I'll explain that later. The second type is is that person who refuses to acknowledge their spiritual uncleanness. These are the ones who would make good friends with the rich young ruler, who when questioned by Jesus about the law of God, he replied what? Do you remember? I know my dad remembers. All these I have kept from my youth, he said. And this is the person who has a low view of God's law. And so they think they have met the standard of holiness required. And because of their efforts, God will accept them. They look into the mirror of the law and they see the reflection. They see a mirage of self-righteousness and pride rather than a guilty sinner covered in filth. And such is the thinking of, of many, even professing Christians. I said Christians before. I meant professing Christians. They may think that they're mostly good, or their good outweighs the bad, or they may look at someone else and say, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. They think, God knows I try my best, and I just can't imagine a God who would condemn me to everlasting punishment for trying my hardest. That just isn't the God I know. And the devil smiles deceptively because they, unlike this leper, have not acknowledged their spiritual condition. And so they see no need for coming to Christ at all. They've fashioned a God of their own imagination And they haven't faced the true God who is infinite in holiness and requires perfection to be right with him and to enter into his presence. And more than that, they haven't come to truly grieve that they've sinned not only against one who is altogether holy, but one who is altogether good and loving and kind. Now, the third and last type of unwillingness I'll mention here is what I alluded to briefly earlier as well. And it's on the other side of the spectrum of what I just described in the second point. It's the one who sees themselves as so vile that they refuse to come to Christ for fear he will reject them. This may result in a person thinking that they have to clean themselves up before coming to Jesus which actually displays the same heart as the previous example where we think we need to stop doing this bad thing and start doing this good thing, and then I'll come to Jesus, and somehow he'll be more inclined to accept me. Now, here's the folly of this, which we'll sing in our closing hymn. And in one place it says, If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. If you tarry or wait till you're better, you will never come at all. In other words, there's no waiting until we're better or more presentable because we cannot do that on our own anyway. 
We actually just make matters worse for ourselves on our own. And so we'll actually never come to Christ. Or alternatively, rather than trying to clean ourselves up, perhaps one sees this holy God and his holy law revealed in Scripture and sees their sinfulness and they think they're too far gone or too filthy. You may think, if Jesus knew what I've done, if, if Jesus knew my past, if Jesus could see the skeletons in my closet that I haven't told to anyone else, surely he'd be disgusted. Surely he'd reject me. And on and on the doubts and excuses go. But as we've seen already in this text, Christ pities the weak, the vile, the needy and desperate ones who come to him in faith. It makes his mercy towards us in the gospel all the more baffling that despite knowing everything about us, he still loves us. And as he knew who this leper was, so he knows you. He knows your heart, and such is his heart, that if you've rejected him up until this very moment, the gracious offer still stands to come to him, which means to trust in him alone to save you, and he will not turn you away. He is the same Savior he was then. He hasn't changed. He will not change because as God, he cannot change. And I think of the hymn we sang last week, Rock of Ages, and that line that says, Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And there are those here sitting in pews week by week who I know have not yet gone to this fountain of Christ's blood, but you can go now without price for the cleansing you desperately need. And when we come to Jesus by faith saying, if you will, you can make me clean. He says, gladly, I will be clean. As he takes our sin, our guilt and our shame and removes our filthy rags and clothes us with his own righteous robes, which are white as snow, without spot, without blemish, And in that robe, we will stand for all eternity, cleansed and saved on the basis of Christ's righteousness and merits alone. Unless we think that we can receive this free gift and continue in that same state we were once in, his grace abounds even more in that he does not leave us the way we are or in the state we were in when we first came to him. His promise is to make us new. For we were once dead, and by his power, we're raised to new life. He sanctifies and transforms us little by little to make us more like himself, until like the verse for the assurance of pardon Quran read this morning, we see him face to face and are finally made perfect like him. His gospel is a balm to be continually applied 
to the remnants of the leprous spots of sin in us. It is this gospel which is the hope, the only hope, for sinners. However, continue to wait and refuse. Continue to put off repentance and faith. Continue to perhaps sit in the pew and neglect this free gift week after week. And this Jesus you meet face to face when you die will not shine upon you in pity or mercy, but in wrath like a consuming fire. And now this third type of unwillingness can be seen in believers as well. Because we still sin, we still fall short. And when we do, we may begin to believe the lie that God will eventually give up on us. That his love for us is dependent upon how well we live. That this sin we've fallen into again, that we repented of yesterday and the day before and the day before will somehow be the last straw. We forget that there's a reason why the Christian life is one of continued repentance. Not because we need to earn back God's favor when we sin, but because we keep sinning and in growing hatred of it and sorrow over it, we daily bring it to the cross. And there we are reminded of what our gracious king has done with our sin. And in faith and gratitude, we endeavor to turn from it, turn from that sin and obey our Savior who has shown us such kindness. So let this text be a comfort to you, dear believer, because such is the heart of Christ that when you come to him with your doubts and your failures and your sins for the thousandth time, he'll receive you as gladly as he did the first. His patience is unfathomable towards his loved ones. It is his delight, said one saint, to see his people bringing their wounds, their sores, and their burdens to him. For he alone is the remedy to all our troubles. The greatest of which, as we've seen, is our sin, which his blood has washed away. And forevermore he intercedes and advocates for us in heaven as our living Savior, our risen Savior, where he longs to bring us. And he will in due time. So let us take heart and rest upon our priestly physician and live as those made clean. And let us think of these things as we read these verses again. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you sent your Son into the world, not to save the righteous, not to save those who have it all together, Not to save those who try their hardest, but to save sinners. To save the weak and the needy, the poor and the wretched and the vile. 
And we're so thankful that this gospel is free for us, though it cost much for you, Lord Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to have this leper's approach, that we would daily come to you, that we would bring our burdens, our sores, our sorrows to you in all trials and afflictions. And when we sin again, we pray that we would bring our sins to you, bring them to the cross, and look to your wounds, Lord Jesus, which testify of your love for us, your love for your often failing, often erring sheep. And help us to have that assurance day by day that our relationship with you, our salvation is not dependent upon us or our faithfulness, but upon your faithfulness, Lord Jesus. And as our priestly physician, help us to rest in you by faith day by day and to rejoice in the fact that as those made clean, we get to live in fellowship with you. We get to obey your law joyfully because it no longer condemns us. Lord, help us to do these things every day and this week. And we pray all these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.